Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Double Play Podcast. In today's episode, Ryan and I have got a special one for you, an interview segment with Dan Levitt and Mark Armour, two of the most respected names in the baseball saber research space. We're so excited to talk to them about their new book, Intentional Block, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating. We've already recorded that interview segment. That'll be a couple minutes later on in the episode, but let's get to Ryan and I. What's up, everybody? Today we are back. Jack, how's it going? We are back. We're settled into college. First week of class is done. Jack, how are you doing? I'm doing well, but I didn't get to see Stranger Things star Dacre Montgomery yesterday like you did. I did. and I mean, he threw up the frog. So, I mean, it was exciting. Good to see him talk about one of my favorite shows. But I mean, that was a great experience. Today, we've got also another great experience. Today, we talked to Dan Levitt and Mark Armour about their new book, Intentional Bach. It's a great interview. Um, we should get into it soon. But Jack, anything you got to say before we get into this? I will just say we've been talking. We we don't really have as much time to talk about baseball this week, but your Dodgers are doing just some crazy stuff right now. We've got a TikTok about it where Ryan details just the crazy run the Dodgers are on. But 41 and nine in their last 50 games. I couldn't get through this episode without without bringing that up because that is just it's wild. And I think you're right that no one's talking about it. And I think they absolutely should. As much as I hate the Dodgers, like 41 and nine, you have to respect that. Oh, definitely. And I mean, they're not, they're not winning cheapo games against bad teams. I mean, I mean, through a 50 game stretch, it's hard to only win against bad teams anyway, but I mean, they're winning games by multiple runs. They're putting up shutouts. They're piling it on. I mean, they're coming back from games just yesterday. They were down twice, and Mookie had two bombs and a double uh, to, to tie it and go, go ahead. They ended up winning 10-6 in 10 innings. So, I mean, they're on an unbelievable run right now. And, I mean, do you think any team can dethrone them? Because they're obviously, I mean, they got to be, I, I think they are betting favorites at this point. But I think just if you're pick them favorites, I believe the Dodgers are as well. I mean, is there, who's the biggest team? Who's the biggest threat to dethrone, or not dethrone them, but catch them, if you will? I, I don't know. I mean, it's so hard because it's like, what do you think is going to beat the Dodgers? Like, are you going to go superpower on superpower? Or are you going to go last year with the Giants where it's kind of like small ball? You get lucky that that to, to me brings to mind the Mets. The superpower brings to mind the Astros or the Braves. I, don't, I really don't think it's possible. I mean, they've been the last couple days even making Sandy Alcantara and Corbin Burns, like maybe two of the, the three or four NL Cy Young finalists at the end of the year. They're making them look like, rookie pitchers like they've given both of them one of their worst starts of the year on like back-to-back days it seemed like too I, I don't think anyone's catching the Dodgers at this point but anything else in baseball you want to talk about I just felt like I had to shout out the run that they're on yeah I mean the biggest thing this week has been Julio Rodriguez massive extension I mean it, it, there were so many I can't I can't even remember all the little quirks in it but it has potential to be if he wins all the incentives and club options and player options, uh, it'll be the biggest contract in American sports, which I, I, it feels like every new contract signed is like the biggest contract nowadays. So I'm sure a couple of weeks, a couple of years, it, they won't be anymore. But right now he signed an absolutely massive extension that could be up to 18 or 20 years, I believe, and 450 million plus. So that was massive. That was one thing that was just crazy news. Yeah, if you if you're a team and you haven't extended your young players yet, 
do it now because it only gets more expensive. We've seen the Braves at the forefront of that. Uh, they've got Acuna on a steal deal right now. They just got Austin Riley and Matt Olson. I'm sure we'll look at those deals in about a year or two and be like, wow, I mean, great, great move by Anthopolis and the Braves to get those done early. The Mariners do this. I would not be surprised if soon we're seeing deals for Adley Rutschman, uh, Bobby Witt Jr., like other some of these other young players that like just get it out of the way before they really turn it. They win an MVP and then you're paying them hundreds of millions of dollars more and Julio Rodriguez, maybe it might've been too late because they're already paying him so much money. The ability for it to be 20 years too, is just unprecedented. Uh, what a crazy extension. Yeah. Baseball. It's a great time in baseball right now. A lot of young stars, all these extensions, like you said, you could go sign them now. It seems like that's what the era we're in kind of ushering out the 10 year, $300 million deal and getting into the 15, $400 million deal era for these young stars so it's exciting to see baseball for a long time but like we mentioned today we're looking at baseball history in a sense with this new book intentional Bach. our conversation we sat down with dan lovett and mark armor to talk about the book and then just baseball's history between innovation and cheating and what what that kind of looks like and what it means for the future so i think without further ado we can get into this interview absolutely let's go back to past ryan and past me and get into what we talked about with dan and mark also Shout out old man Albert Pujols. Let's get into it. It's a pleasure to be joined by two of the the biggest researchers in the baseball space, critically acclaimed authors and Sabre board members, Dan Levitt and Mark Armour. Dan, Mark, thanks for joining our show. I appreciate being on. Thank you. Our pleasure. Yeah, and today we just wanted to kind of base our conversation around their new book, Intentional Bach, which highlights the baseball's thin line between innovation and cheating and what qualifies it eat, what, what qualifies as each. And it's clear reading the book that baseball and cheating, they've got a long history together. Dan, Mark, where do you guys want to start it off? Well, I'll take just part of the history side of this because, um, you know, baseball first became uh, sort of popular, if you will, back in the 1850s in, in, around, in and around New York City in particular. And as soon as you had these club teams playing each other competitively, teams started cheating. I mean, they were uh, getting ringers from other teams. You had players jumping. If, if a team had a big match, what team player would jump from one team to another? The game was supposed to be an amateur, but um, shortly thereafter, you had teams paying players, right? So by the, by, by um, 1860, you had teams paying players under the table. So th this goes back to the very beginning. One other early example is at the time you had to pitch underhand and depending on exactly which rules you're playing with, you had to keep a straight arm. And um, later it was raised so your arm couldn't go above your waist. Well, by the time you had that rule, you had players hiking up their pants extra high to make their waist look like it was higher up and you could get uh, a spot. So whether it was teams or players, you know, these were competitive people and very competitive matches and they were doing anything they could to get an advantage. Yeah, I think an important distinction too is the fact that for most players in baseball history this is like their livelihood this is their job what they're making money off of and as competitive players who are not only competing you know for their own personal legacy but also for money to put food on the table you're going to have to try and find some advantage uh mark do you have any like examples from history of competitive people just trying to find an advantage put themselves ahead in this game that we love sure i mean the one one thing i always tell people who I think are naturally skeptical about the idea that every, everybody cheats and and we don't actually believe that everybody cheats but you know with a if you have a team of you know two teams of people chances are there's somebody on there that's trying to think of, of a way to sneak around 
is I always think of it like this. Like if you ever played, you know, pick up basketball or, or soccer at the playground or something, there's always like that one guy, right. That, that is like trying harder than everybody else. And we use the word competitive. Um, you know, we've always used the word competitive to describe these people, but you know, there's a limit to how competitive you want people to be that you're playing with. Right. It's like that one guy that throws the elbow a little too hard and, and uh, whatnot and tries to get away with it. And, and, you know, certainly before you had, if before, when you're playing the game without referees or without umpires, there is, there are always going to be people that are, you know, stepping on the line and not, not admitting it, following you, not admitting it, claiming that a goal went over the line when it really didn't. That's kind of always happened. And then once you have umpires or refs, um, then, um, essentially the game becomes, how can I fool this guy? or this, this woman, um, to not call what is obvious to me to be the case. Uh, trapping the ball in the outfield is, a, is an example, missing a base accidentally. Um, but, you know, by the 1890s or so, there were teams that were not missing bases accidentally. They were missing bases on purpose because there was only one umpire. Yeah, in the 1890s, and it wasn't until the teens they got two umpires, and then you know gradually they added umpire um, every few years. It wasn't until the 1950s that we had four umpires, and we added those umpires in part because you know the game is complicated. There's a lot of stuff going on, but in part because everybody's trying to cheat. They're trying to f- do things behind the umpire's back, and the guy can't watch everything. Um, so I just ask you know, readers or or people that are interested in the subject to just realize that these are, as you said earlier, professionals and the most competitive people you've ever played with. There's 25 of them on on the Seattle Mariners or the Chicago Cubs. And um, they are not dishonest people, any more dishonest than your friends and family are, but they're hyper-competitive and their livelihood depends on this. Maybe their careers, maybe, maybe they're, maybe, you know, this isn't true for, for the, for Mike Trout, but for most people playing, uh, you know, getting this hit here or stealing this base there could make the difference between whether they have a baseball career. So there's going to be cheating. Absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, the umpires being involved in it and it kind of brings the question as, if a guy's just trying to fool the umpire and he gets away with it, do we consider that cheating? And kind of just in general, where's the line between cheating and then just smart, innovative baseball where you're just trying to gain that advantage versus when is it too far and consider cheating in cases? Well, I would say just to finish up my what I was talking about before, what we decided at the start was that we would define cheating as uh needing two things to be happening one is that you are breaking a known rule um and and two that you did so in order to gain an advantage for yourself or your team so i would argue that most of these things that we're talking about are cheating now the second question is and this is just really just maybe it's a matter of semantics but i think we consider all of this stuff cheating but then the second question is some cheating is okay. You know, some cheating is everybody agrees that this is maybe cheating by our definition that, and again, we, we made up the definition, but it's, it's kind of okay to do 
because the players and the umpires and everybody else involved has sort of agreed that this is competitiveness. Um, but the line, uh, the the tricky thing, the thing that causes baseball trouble is when it gets to the point where there isn't agreement on this issue. Like sign stealing was okay until people decided that, well, maybe it wasn't okay. And then you ended up essentially having what turned out to be sort of a crisis within baseball world uh, because they hadn't, they hadn't come up with a rule or enforced it. Yeah. I think that's that, that enforce it part is kind of what it comes down to a lot of the time. And think of another recent, cheating scandal um, with the sticky stuff kind of that, that sparked a little bit last year, the last couple of years, because everyone knew it was happening. Everyone knew pitchers were using a little bit of something. And then the MLB decided to actually enforce the rule that they've had for so long. And now, I mean, you, you look at baseball fans and they get on pitchers who, if they look at the, the baseball savant numbers and see the spin rates up, they're like, Oh, this person's using sticky stuff. And, and baseball fans are now actually getting upset about it. Whereas you look a couple of years in the past, everyone knew it was happening. Everyone was okay with it. So is it fair to say that it often comes down to who is enforcing it and whether it's actually being enforced? Yeah. I mean, we actually sort of look at four different categories of this kind of, uh, kind of thing um, as we're, we, you know, one of the things as historians are trying to sort of systematize and put some context around what's going on here. And so I think there's sort of three things that we have found where you have this sort of controversy or chaos Um you know, the first is where there's no formal rule, but everybody believes it's cheating. All right. And an example of that would be sign stealing, particularly in the 20th century with binoculars, where there was all sorts of controversies around people using binoculars to steal signs. But there was actually no rule. There was no rule that said you couldn't have something, you know, an artificial something artificial or in the outfield and try and steal signs. And yet everybody kept it secret. And when it was exposed, people tried to deny it. So clearly that was an issue and it kind of led to where we ended up with, with the Astros eventually. Another one is where um, there's a rule against it. People are generally ambivalent. So I'm going to use the, your example of the sticky stuff or, or, or anything, substances on the ball. And, and here you had, for example, um, everybody was talking about, you know, pitchers cheating, but between Nelson Potter in 1944 and Gaylord Perry in 1982, nobody was actually suspended or for, for having, you know, illegal stuff on the ball, even though it was all kinds of conversations around it. So, and another would be where you have a rule and everybody agrees it's bad, but you can't enforce it or you can't detect it. You know, maybe steroids during the nineties are an example of that, where I think, you know, everybody felt like this is wrong. Nobody was admitting it, but yet, there, there was no way to enforce it. Um, a, you couldn't test. You didn't know who was doing it. And, and there weren't penalties against it anyway. So, you know, when you when you have any of those three situations, you know, you're just going to end up with sort of a problem at the end. And it's only when baseball finally sort of decides, OK, we got to do something about this and put in a rule that it settles itself out in some sort of rational way. And in fairness to baseball, can't you can't predict everything that's going to happen. Part of you has to be reactive as people come up with new stuff. Um, you know, sometimes baseball is pretty quick in getting on top of it. And sometimes, you know, they're a little bit more clumsy about it. And it's a little bit more awkward. Yeah, one thing I would I would add to that. I mean, people. Um, you know, steroids was such a big deal uh, in the 90s. People, you know, people talked about it certainly into the 2000s until we finally had testing. But the 
I think one of the challenges there was that everyone really, I shouldn't say everyone, but I think generally a lot of people liked the game then. Um, they really liked what was happening. And I think that there was a little bit, the fan backlash was kind of a little bit behind maybe then because everybody was like, are you sure this is, well, I, sh I shouldn't say, I don't think the conversation was that maybe that uh, open, but it was, I think that there was just less pressure on baseball to do anything, even though I think that the, even Commissioner Selig, uh, I think, got to the point where it was maybe a little bit embarrassing for him. But I think that the sticky stuff was different because I think people don't like the game now as much. There's a lot of commentary around the fact that the pitchers have these incredible advantages and you're watching these, you know, these videos on Twitter that it, it just seems like the pitches are unhittable. It's like a video game or like a wiffle ball. And I think that if you watch these pitches and you see these spin rates and you see some people throwing 102 mile an hour, two seamers, then I think it's easy to look at the fact that they're cheating and, and sort of say like, well, this needs to be stopped because it's, re it's, it's resulting in, a game that we don't really like as much. Um, and I think most baseball fans, I think if you pulled them would say that there's too many strikeouts. So I think that people are hoping that if we can cut the spin rates down, we'll have fewer strikeouts and maybe the game will get a little bit better. So I, I think that there is always going to be the, the sort of the marketing aspect of what's the game we want and is the cheating that's currently going on hurting this and i think that that's what's happening now definitely and like i mean the way it affects the game and then also the way baseball responds to it is i, I think i think it's very very important to kind of preventing future offenses in the in the future and i mean one, one thing that comes to mind is the the science skill and scandal feels like maybe if there was a stronger punishment enforced onto say the Astros, for example, or the teams that were stealing signs, maybe it wasn't as big of a, as big of a thing for baseball fans to react to. And it just kind of brings up the cost benefit anal analysis. Like, you know, if they're not going to get in a punishment, what, what's, what's really stopping them from doing the future other than, you know, fans viewing them as their legacies tarnished. But I mean, to gain that competitive advantage, where's the line between, you know, is it worth it or not? Well, George Bamberger, who was an old manager of the Brewers and Mets, had had a great quote, um, and and on the close what I would call the cost benefit analysis in playing professional baseball. And he said, "We do not play baseball; we play professional baseball. Amateurs play games. We are paid to win games. There are rules, and there are consequences if you break them. If you are a pro, then you often don't decide whether to cheat based on if it's right or wrong." You base it on whether or not you can get away with it and what the penalty might be. So, you know, the point here is obviously there's there's sort of a moral side to this. And then there's a, you know, if it's it's not necessary. It's not really cheating. It's can I get, you know, what can I get away with and what can I get caught with? And, you know, to a certain degree, that works when you're talking about umpires on the field and trapping the ball. And then there's now there's the, you know, the instant replay that you can look back and um, you know, overturn a call. But, you know, if you're talking about a cork bat, I mean, how, how do you catch a cork bat? So it, it leads to um, certain things that are much 
much more complicated to try and deal with if you're looking at just sort of this cost benefit analysis. And so that's part of what's going on. And, and just one, one quick aside on the sign stealing scandal, which we talk about is that, you know, Rob Manfred in response to the Boston's Apple watch scandal, where they were using the Apple watch in the dugout to um, transmit signals. You know, he came out in the middle of September in 2017 and said, with, with a memo to the team saying, all right, this is going to stop. Here's the penalty for the Red Sox. And if this continues, we're going to punish the manager and the GM. We're going to hold them responsible. And probably that's all he could do. He couldn't really do anything to the players at that time without some agreement through the union. And so, you know, to me, it's sort of like, you know, after September 15th or whatever the exact date was, 2017, at that point, he kind of laid down the line. And if you were, you know, doing, you know, sign stealing, using electronics signaling after that, you were going to get punished. And obviously he brought it down on the Astros. Um, and since then, now, the you know, the, there's been player penalties that have been worked into the collective bargaining agreement. So, you know, I mean, I think they took a scandal and now there's penalties against it and you're unlikely to see it. And I think that's generally the way sort of life works. Right. I mean, someone gets caught and there's an issue around it. You know, what's the penalty? And then sort of the situation, an equilibrium comes where the penalty and the and the and the benefits sort of match. I think a lot of baseball fans are maybe not completely happy with the way that Rob Manfred handled that specific decision. And I think a lot of people point to the fact that no Astros players were suspended a single game for that whole scandal that lasted, you know, seasons in the postseason and ended up them winning a world series. Whereas, I mean, something just recently where um, Pyrus Rodolfo Castro, his phone falls out of his pocket, he gets suspended and none of the Astros did. Do you think that people are now realizing that the, there is more of a punishment for the science dealing scandal because of what Rob Manfred did? Or do you think that's more based on the way that the fans look at the way the Astros cheated? I think a lot of it has to do with the, I think people occasionally misunderstand how much power Rob Manfred actually has. Um, I think that he, you know, if he could wave a wand and punish the Astros that he knew were sign stealing, perhaps he would have done that. He didn't really have any way to do that. There's no, there's no way for him. He does not have that power. There are things in the, in the CBA now that, that it gives him the ability to, um, to punish people for certain, for certain um, kinds of sign stealing. And that's true with steroids too. He didn't, no, no commissioner had that power until the testing agreement was put in place and the players had to sign off on it. Um, the commissioner doesn't have the, the ability to punish people without some agreement with the players in advance that this is, this is going to happen. Um, and of course we know about, or, Rob Manfred knows about uh, how the Astros sign, stole signs because the players told him, right? That's the only, the only way we know what we know about the Astros is because he gave immunity to the players and the players told presumably the truth or at least part of the truth. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a catch 22. I, I think it's going to be harder in the future if there's a scandal like this, because of course the players are not going to tell him now i mean that was like his one shot to figure it out um and i think the fans we we tend to be you know we tend to want more than just i think fairness i think we also want to see people punished that's just sort of the nature of of human beings it's like 
No, I want this guy suspended. I want that guy suspended. Um, as opposed to, you know, wanting it to stop, which is another goal, I think. And I think an important goal, but I think, uh, sometimes we want blood, um, and we didn't we didn't get it or we don't feel like we got it with the Astros, even though, you know, again, they they suspended the GM who still doesn't have a job and the manager for a year, the bench coach, Carlos Beltran. They they, they suspended the people who presumably um, oversaw this or at least allowed it to happen. And that's exactly what Manfred said he was going to do. And right. even if. Uh these guys aren't like actually suspended. They're also hurt in terms of that. We, we know that they did it. And now interesting to see if it'll maybe affect their hall of fame chances or whatever, or it should be interesting. Like, even though they didn't get suspended on the field, I mean, they might face repercussions later and obviously the fans view them differently. I mean, you see the way they, they get their receptions when they go to a visiting ballpark. So it's not just the suspensions too. Yeah, well, I, I definitely we'll find that. that out this this fall because Carlos Beltran is probably the best new person on the Hall of Fame ballot. Um, one of my favorite players, certainly. Um, I think that he'd he'd be really a good candidate. I expect this is going to hurt him quite a bit, even though people don't talk too much about him because he retired after that. So therefore, that he hasn't been booed. He, he hasn't actually faced the boos like. Like Altuve, Altuve is probably the, you know, the best example of a potential Hall of Famer on that team. Um, so we'll see. Just as an aside, I mean, one of the most fascinating things about sign stealing is how well it stays secret. I mean, my my kind of philosophy of conspiracies is that, you know, there aren't a lot of them out there. I mean, I'm generally not a believer in conspiracy theories because anytime you have more than about three people who know a secret, you know, generally it gets out there. And then you take something like the Astros, where you probably had you know, at least 20 people, maybe more who, who knew what was going on between the players and some of the players engaged and, um, you know, the, the front office folks who were, you know, down there actually in the video replay room signaling. I mean, yet, you know, it, it, it didn't, there, and there were like some rumors of it after the series, but the story didn't really come out until the, the one of the players, Mike Fires, who had since been traded came out and talked about it, you know, talked about it. So I, you know, it's just interesting how 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 that took so long to come out, as even even with so many people knowing knowing about it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I remember that all happening. And you had like YouTube channels that were digging in after the Mike Byers comments, and they're some of the ones that really blew the scandal out of the water more than somehow the MLB did, because I'm sure the MLB wanted to keep it a little bit more under wraps as they did their investigation. We had public creators coming out um, and and kind of blowing the scandal out and, and putting it out into the world. We could talk about the Astros all day because it's kind of the biggest recent scandal of cheating. Are there any more of your guys' favorite stories from the book? I don't want you to have to spoil everything in, in between the two covers, but any any other stories of cheating from way back in the past or even more recently that you guys want to share? Well, let me give you one on the drug side, which I, which I, I a story I didn't know and most people I know didn't know, that the first real drug scandal in baseball came around in 1951 when – Hal Neuhauser um, was the star pitcher for the 1945 Detroit Tigers. Uh, he won the MVP that year and the Tigers won the World Series. And it came out in 1951 that he had been taking Novocaine shots in his shoulder when that was a fairly recent drug to um, pitch in the World Series and at the end of the season. And 
there was a very wide reaction to it. I mean, some of the headlines were something like, you know, Tigers dope their way to World Series. And other ones were more like, you know, um, Newhouser took Novocaine shots. And I think that that sort of led to this discussion of sort of how it's evolved both in baseball and in, in other sports where it, it, you have this. And again, I'm not saying this thing in baseball led to it in all sports, but it certainly led to it in baseball where you have this restorative concept um, where it's getting you back to your ability to play versus sort of enhancement of your ability. So that things like cortisone shots or Tommy John surgery or LASIK surgery that nominally, and again, I think there's a big gray area there that sort of gets you back to your normal human potential um, are different than things like, you know, steroids or other performance enhancements that sort of bring you beyond sort of what your natural human limits are. I think there's this idea that for pure sport, we're testing the, you know, human limits against each other. And that if you can artificially enhance that somehow that's unfair. But what was interesting is this was in 1951 and there was this big debate about for a few days over, you know, taking Novocaine shots in the shoulder. And, you know, some people were saying this is terrible. You know, you can't do it to horses and in horse racing. And other people were saying, you know what, this is just sort of what people need to do. And, and it evolved from them. But that was really the first time um, drugs were ever a. Uh, a, a controversial issue in baseball and allowed this sort of the conversation to evolve from that. I think that's evolved too. And you mentioned other sports and football. I think it, it's so common for there to be certain <laughs> drugs that players take before the game, even at halftime to be able to get through all 60 minutes of baseball. And that scene is okay. Whereas, I mean, we saw Fernando Tatis just recently, large speculation is he started using PEDs to come back from an injury, but now we all view him as a cheater. So I think that's definitely a very interesting dynamic. And again, it's a pretty big gray area, I mean, between them, but I think clearly sort of philosophically, that's generally how um, as a, as a sport, we, we view it. And I would just say one other thing, and I know Mark has a couple of great stories here. I don't, um, but amphetamines for almost all of baseball history were viewed as a way to get through 162 game season. I mean, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, especially the sixties, it changed a little bit, you know, trainers would have amphetamine juice and lockers for players. And, you know, and Reggie Jackson talked about this, that the 162 game season is really hard to get through. And, you know, amphetamines were viewed not so much as an enhancement, but as a way to just sort of get yourself through the season, whether or not that makes it cheating or not. Um, I mean, I mean, clearly it's, they were illegal and you weren't supposed to be taking them, but at least from the player standpoint, they were viewed differently. Yeah, the, the 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 our book is is two things. Um, is it's a history book, so we 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 want to explain to people that all the stuff that you know and love about uh, baseball, people trying to you know, you know cheat, um, has been going on forever. People in science dealing since since the nineteenth century. People have been docking the balls. People have been corking bats, etc. Really, it. The cheating sort of starts whenever the rule comes into place, or or the ability to get around the rule, you know, gets into place. But the other thing we want people to sort of realize is that the old cheating that they think is really funny from the history books is also is also still going on. And this is sort of a surprise. This was a little bit of a surprise to me. I, Dan and I are a bit older than you, and. Uh, I remember reading um, when I was a kid, like say back in the seventies, I'd read these stories about John McGraw um, in the old Orioles of the 1890s who were pretty, 
pretty famous, excellent team, lots of Hall of Fame players on the team, but they were really known for being um, outlaws. You know, they were they were cutting bases and they were holding belt loops of guys that went running around the field and they were hiding balls in the outfield. And it all seemed to me as a kid, like a little bit like a tall tale of the old West, you know, that, that people used to behave this way before we evolved into the honest people that we are now. And um, so when I come across something like this happening today, I, I, it's, it's, it's really fun to see them because you realize that nothing has really changed. What's really changed is we have more video cameras pointing at people now. So it's a little bit harder to get away with stuff. There was a play in 2018 and, and I missed this when it happened. So it was really fun to find it. Um, Adam Frazier was the third baseman for the, um, for the Mets in this, this game, which, which was in uh, city field and they were playing against the Dodgers and the guy in the Dodgers, I think was Alex Redugo hit a pop-up into the, you know, right at the edge of the, of the stands. And he went over, Frazier went over to get it. And he reached into the crowd and came out with the ball and held it up for the umpire and the umpire called him out and he tossed the ball back into the stands. It was a third out and ran off the field. And then this was not replayable, but nonetheless, the re, you know, the video cameras caught it that he, what he actually did was he, he didn't catch the ball at all. The ball was, it sort of fell into the stands and he picked up a different ball that was like lying on a seat. He just grabbed this other ball and held it up. And this was the ball that he got the out call of. And the he said afterwards, he joked about it after the game and said, yeah, it was like a rubber ball. It was like a kid's ball that the kid brought into the into the into the game. So now this kid presumably might have had two balls, the game ball and he he or she got their ball back. So and he laughed about it after the game. Like he it wasn't like uh he was held up to be some big cheater, etc. So you know, if you th- if you realize that this happened, you know, four years ago, um, suddenly the John McGraw stories don't really seem so far fetched. I mean, of course they hid balls in the grass. Why wouldn't they? You know, it makes perfect sense that they would do that. Absolutely. And of course they held belt loops. I mean, why wouldn't they? Uh, people would do that today if they if there were no if there weren't fifty cameras on them and four umpires watching them at all times. They can't do it. So well, that's a- it's really just a question of like what can we get away with? And And this was the case where he found out he could. Yeah. And it just sort of goes back to the umpire thing. So, you know, Todd Frazier, there wasn't really any backlash against him um, in the same way that people sort of look at the old, old Orioles as boys being boys. Um, You know, it's just, it's, if you can get away with it, it, it's probably okay. Uh, You know, although sometimes the reaction is different, you know, and, Mark, you know the story better than I did with Jared Jeter. One of the things that happens occasionally in baseball is um, somebody will um, pretend they got hit by a pitch. And this seems very innocuous, right? And a lot of the cheating that I, I think if people read this book, they will say, well, that doesn't seem that bad. Or, God, that's horrible. I can't believe somebody did that. And I think that that is not something we really necessarily try and talk anybody into. We just tell them what the rules are, right? These are the rules. The rule was broken. Uh, And most famously, 
Derek Jeter. I think other people have done this, but Derek Jeter is a good person to talk about because he's pretty famous and also considered, I think, by most people to be a pretty upstanding, honest person. So it's a good example for us. Um, he was in a game a few years ago, near the end of his career, in fact, and uh, it was a it was a it was against Tampa Bay, and he got a ball up, uh, you know, on the handle, which um, and he kind of not only did he tell the umpire he got hit he actually called the trainer out and the trainer um, the trainer sprayed his hand down he was like shaking it and then when you see the replay it it very clearly hit the knob of the bat it didn't hit his hand at all and um after the game he said you know well you know the umpire tells me to go to first base i'm going to go to first base and joe madden who was the manager of the tampa bay said you know he, he got kicked out of the game arguing the play but then after the game, he said, well, if it was one of my guys, I'd be cheering him on. So they all kind of know that this is how baseball is played, right? It is not the honor code that, you know, supposedly if you did this and played for the you know Naval Academy, supposedly you get expelled from uh, for because you not only do you have to not lie, you have to tell the truth at all times. And Jeter obviously did not. Um, but uh, that's how that's how baseball is played and it's played that way not just by the people that everybody likes to dislike but also by people like Derek Jeter we have stories in there about from Hank Greenberg Gil Hodges people that are considered sort of upstanding you know people that you want your kids to be like and we have stories about them which I think are even more fun because it's not just Jose Canseco cheating is not really breaking news but Hank Greenberg cheating is kind of cool I think I remember a play like that. I think it was it was either last season or 2020 uh, in that the Mets Marlins game where Brandon Nimmo, like at the end of the game, leans in his elbow to get by pitch. And I know I remember watching that. I didn't think it was cheating. I was like, the umpire should have realized that's what he was doing. But I mean, it, good, good for him for getting away with it. I know if, you know, if the Giants did it and I was watching, I'd be happy about it. And I know if the team playing them did it, I wouldn't be happy about it. But I, I, it's kind of one of those things that's like you're very, you're breaking a rule and you're just, de- you're deceiving the umpire, but I personally wouldn't consider it cheating. I know, I don't know if, if everyone else shares that um, opinion about it, but I watched that and I didn't think Brandon Nimmo is a cheater. I thought he just got away with a good play. Yeah. There's some things that it, it's obviously a gray area. Like is a lot of teams, like you said, Joe, Ma- Joe Madden said, well, if my guy did it, I'd be cheering him on. There, there's a lot of those scenarios and, like you said, trapping the ball, obviously that can't happen with replay now, but before, I mean, any teams would do that. And that just seems like competitive advantage and something that they didn't get caught with. So yeah, there's definitely a, like, like Jack said, uh, if it happened for my team, I'd be happy about it. And if it happened against me, I'd be upset. So you're right. There's, there's so much gray area with this as well. And it's just what, what can you get away with? And then what crosses the line? So it's, it's just fascinating. All these stories to read. I know one what one analogy we use um very early in the book just to get people i think i think one of the things we want to s- set the scene for people is just is for them to know that they're like this too that most people are like this even though you might think you're not like if the speed limit on the highway is 60 miles an hour you're going to drive over the speed limit and you have in your head a limit in that you've you've decided on what you actually can drive like maybe at 68 that's the that's the that's the speed you're allowed to drive any more than that 
somebody passes you and you're in 68, you're like, I can't believe that guy's driving so fast, even though you're both cheating. And I think, so I think we naturally do this and the society kind of works because people have kind of come up with this, this way of driving. And I think cops, you can't pull you all, all the cheaters over. Uh, and the baseball has kind of found this equilibrium as well. And I think instant replay is kind of mess with this a little bit because I think instant replay is catching things that people didn't really want to have it catch because it, it, it's like, it's like things that people kind of want in the game, but you just, it, there's no way to tell instant replay to, to have this nuance, right? You either, either you, it's in the rule or it's not. So. And just, and just going back the the deception of the umpire is is one area that we spend time on in the book and it's obviously really fun to talk about but that that that's a fairly narrow area and um there's you know all kinds of other stuff there's the front office shenanigans around roster rules and a lot of this stuff where you actually have to dig in and do the research to catch it or someone actually has to do an investigation to catch it that's where i think cheating is much more clearly um where we feel where we feel differently about it where you where there's no natural way to uncover it and that's where you end up with strict penalties i don't you know one of the examples is chris correa who was the scouting director um, for the st louis cardinals packed into the houston astros database and found out all sorts of stuff and he was eventually sentenced to 46 months in jail you know that's that's a pretty strong deterrent i don't think we're going to have people hacking into other teams databases after that um and so, you know, the, the, the harder something is to catch, generally, the more we feel like something ought to be done about it. Maybe that had something to do with the Astros and steroids, because, you know, until testing on steroids and, how, you know, how do you there's no good way to detect the Astros um, until you sort of know something like that can exist. And you actually then put monitor, you know, people monitor human monitors in these replay booths to watch what's going on. Yeah, I think you go outside of baseball, too. There was the recent uh, with the Miami Dolphins tampering with Sean Payton and Tom Brady, and they got this this huge, harsh punishment that I think is going to make other teams think twice if they're going to want to do something similar. But obviously, you guys did the research. There's so many great examples throughout this book, stories that and I personally have never heard, and I think tons of baseball fans uh, around the country have never heard as well. Is there anything else that you guys want viewers to know about the book before they hopefully go out and buy a copy themselves? The, the only thing I would add, and you know, to Mark too, is that you know one of the, it, the in, we, we talk a lot about how innovation affects cheating, and that if people come up with something new, someone will figure out a way to gain an advantage of it. This is everything from inventing the farm system by Branch Rickey, and then uh, using it to sort of illegally corner, corner players and keep them from being able to advance. You keep more players in your system, to the invention, uh, the introduction of Prism modern prism binoculars in 1894 and by 1899 the philadelphia phillies are in the outfield using them to steal science so you know smart people are going to look for new ways and as things come along people will figure out ways to try and use them for a competitive advantage yeah like a lot one of the um the big darlings of the baseball research world in um, you know five years ago, of course, was the Astros. Dan and I wrote about it ourselves in our in our previous book, 
Um, there was an entire book written about the Astros and about how they were, you know, they were going to reinvent how, how baseball was, was run. Um, and I think with, with good reason, I think that the Astros were incredibly smart about player development, about scouting, about how they evaluate players, um, about how they, they actually, how they play the game itself. And all this is from really smart people that came from outside of baseball and were using new, you know, new techniques that, you know, that Branch Rickey would not have, have known to think of. Uh, and, and in many ways, I think there was a lot of resentment of, of them by a lot of the baseball people because they were, they were outsiders and they weren't doing it the, the, the way. And maybe this is a lesson for us, right? That it was like these people came in, they were obviously innovative. They got a lot of credit for this. Um, and then it turns out that they were cheating. I mean, they weren't completely, it wasn't just because they were cheating. They're still a great team, right? They're, they're one of the best organizations in baseball and presumably they're not sign stealing anymore. But uh, so there's a lot more to it than just cheating, but they couldn't, it's like they couldn't help themselves. Right. And I think that's one of the lessons that Dan was just alluding to is it's not, you know, the, the people that tend to be pushing the envelope are people that are smart, not, not people that are just, you know, blue collar, dumb criminals um these are smart people and maybe they don't have maybe they're not wrapped themselves in the baseball culture and they don't necessarily have the same uh the same views about tradition as other people but they're they know how to win they know how to succeed they're very successful people and uh this happens yeah absolutely i mean you guys i know how much you love baseball and i, I think a lot of people might hear all these stories about baseball and think this is an anti-baseball book, but I, I, I mean, talking with you guys, it's, it absolutely is not. I think all baseball fans would absolutely love this read. Um, there's just some, some crazy stories for every generation. And thank you guys so much for, for joining us. It's been so fun to, to talk all about this with you guys. It was great. Appreciate I really appreciate uh, getting a chance to talk to both of you. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. yeah thank, thank you guys. Uh, we will be back and you guys can find this book in our description. If you're watching this on YouTube, it'll be down in the description. If you're on Spotify or Apple podcasts, you can find it in the footnotes for the article. But Dan, Mark, thank you guys so much. One last time, uh, make sure you go read Intentional Bach, Baseball's Thin Line Between Cheating or Between Innovating and Cheating. <laughs>